turn in with me in your Bibles this morning to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. As I was seeking the Lord about the message for this morning, I could not get away from this text. Well known. Not the first time I've ever preached from the text, and I'm sure it won't be the last. Job chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Let's hear the Lord's word. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. There were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was seven thousand sheep, and three thousand camels, and five hundred yoke of oxen, and five hundred she-asses, and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? There is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, 
There came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose and went, rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. And the Lord will add his blessing to that reading from his word. We bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, in the Savior's name, we bow once more praying for mercy. Thou art the God who's full of mercy, and that mercy endureth forever. Certainly, Lord, that means there's mercy for this meeting in thy word. Grant it, we pray, in abundance to the preacher and to the hearer. Make this to be a word in season for thy people, a word that will turn their thoughts heavenward and strengthen them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. He never saw it coming. Never in a million years did Job think that he would be the recipient of such tragic news. Within a matter of minutes, four messengers come running up to Job to tell him that he's just lost all of his livestock, all of his servants, and all of his children. Certainly, there's no way he could ever imagined, dreamed, that that day would come. After all, the Lord had showered abundant blessings upon Job. So evident was the blessing of the Lord upon his life that even the devil said that God had put a wall of protection around him and had grown his wealth exponentially. That's the idea when he said that his substance is increased in the land. It's like the idea is bursting out of the seams. It was phenomenal. The blessing of God upon Job's life. Everyone knew, whether in heaven, earth, or hell, that Job was an object of God's great favor. And from something he says in chapter 29, it's, it's apparent that Job thought that this life of divine protection and divine prosperity was never going to end. When recounting as he's sitting in the ashes and covered with boils, recounting how his life used to be, before all this calamity 
fell upon him. Job said, then, when I was in that state, then I said, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. And that was his attitude. He believed that. He thought he was going to live on and on in this nice, protected, comfortable nest until the day he died, and then he'd go up to heaven and be with God. But that notion was brought to a very abrupt and painful end when those messengers came. It must have been a staggering, just to to try to to comprehend all that was being told him in that little brief period of time. In one moment of time, Job's entire world has been turned upside down. And it would never be the same again. The man who thought that he would live and die in his nest, that his circumstances in life were never going to change, has just been given a reality check from the hand of God. He thought that his possessions and his family were safe and secure from all alarm. But those very things were taken away from him. Not gradually, but in the same day. Now, the question that naturally arises when you read the story of Job is why? Why did all of this happen to Job? Why did this man who who was, according to God's own testimony, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, why was He put through all of that heartache, all of that pain, all of that suffering, which would seem to us to be inordinate, over the top. The fact of the matter is that you never find, really, why. That question is not ever answered in the book of Job. Job asked that question a thousand different ways and a thousand different times, but you won't read anywhere in this book God giving an answer to Job's, Why has this happened to me? Why have you done this? It's true there were lessons that Job needed to learn about God. Lessons he needed to learn about himself and about others. There was thinking in his mind that had to be corrected. His thinking about God, about himself, and about others. Views that had to be brought in line with God's truth. But that being so, you never find the Lord answering his question, why have you done this? Never do you read God telling Job what was behind all of this 
in the first place. That the devil wanted to prove that Job was only serving God because he had blessed him. That was behind it all. And you never find God informing Job of that in this book. So often we as God's people want to know why God does this or does that or doesn't do this thing and doesn't do the other. Why he sends grief and pain into the lives of his people. Why he allows the devil to attack his own children in ways at times that are devastating. Devastating. Why does God remove the very things from our lives that have been a means and evidence of his blessing upon us? But the vital question isn't really why. The real question that needs to be asked is how. How should we, as Christians, respond to these mysterious ways of God when he takes away, when he removes the things that have brought such blessing to our lives that have been the source of much happiness and that have taught us so much about the Lord and about ourselves and about others. Here's where we find one of those secondary reasons for Job's affliction to show us how God, godly people should respond when God removes, removes his tokens of blessing. The Lord is taking me away from you as your pastor. The Lord has done this. I do not have the time, nor really the heart, to go into all the details. But I can assure you this is something the Lord has done, completely out of my control. And the Lord is taking you as a flock away from me. The question isn't really why. That's God's business. The question is how. How do we respond to all of this? How do we respond to all the mystery and the sadness and the unknown, the changes? How do we respond to these divine removals from our lives? You need to know the answer to that question. Because if it's not the removal of your pastor, it'll be the removal of a child, the removal of a spouse, the removal of a mother, of a father, it's going to come. 
why is not the question. How do I respond? It's from Job's response at the end of this chapter that I want to preach this morning on a godly response to God's removals. A godly response to God's removals. So as you look at Job's response, the one whom the Lord himself had said, there's no one like him. Note in the first place that Job sorrowed. That's a godly response. He sorrowed. Verse 20, then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head. Then he arose. It seems particularly after hearing of the death of his children that he arose. The mantle was an outer garment that covered the inner tunic. And it was in that day the custom to tear your garment as an outward expression of grief and sorrow in the heart. Shaving the head or plucking out the beard, as you remember Ezra did when he came back and found sin. Marrying the heathen, the Gentiles in Jerusalem, he plucked the hair off his face. It was an expression of deep sorrow, profound sorrow. So Job, he ran his mantle and he shaved his head. Let's show you this was not just something that was a flash and it was over with. This took time. Oh, the rending of the outer garment, but the time to shave his head. He was filled with incredible grief. I want to say that God does not forbid you and I to grieve when he takes things away from us. When he brings affliction into our lives, he doesn't expect us to have this stiff upper lip and think that that's the picture of a man or of courage. Being tough. Oh, I think Job was a man's man. But he sorrowed. And he wept. He does not send, God does not send affliction into our lives and just tells us to smile and just keep going on and just dry your tears and move on. Yes, endure hardships, we must. Courageous in the face of insurmountable difficulties, we are to be. But when the Lord brings into our lives that which actually breaks our hearts, He knew it would break our hearts. And He's therefore given us tears so that we can weep. and hearts to feel so we can grieve. He's not called us to be Stoics. He doesn't forbid us to cry. 
It, it's good to mourn. Not only is it good to mourn, it is godly to mourn. May I remind you of what took place at the grave of Lazarus? Jesus wept. There he was standing outside the tomb crying. It was evident. It was visible. He didn't hold it in. He didn't say, I can't let these people see me weeping. I'm the Son of God. You recall, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he went, went off to pray. He said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. He told them that. He confessed that to his own disciples. His creation. He told them, my heart is breaking. And then he went out in the place of prayer and wept. The night after, or the night of, actually, Andrew Bonner lost his wife in childbirth. He wrote these words in his diary. In the evening, my wife died. Well does he know what has been blighted with her. But he does not forbid me to mourn. Nor will he forget to bless. Salvation does not make the heart insensible or incapable of grief. Holiness, you see, holiness actually increases one's capacity for suffering. You want to know what hardens the heart? It's sin. Sin. Sin hardens the heart and leaves it like a stone. There's coming a day, John says, when the Lord will wipe every tear from our eyes. But until that day comes, he knows there's going to be plenty of tears. And he does not chide us. He does not chide us for giving vent to our sorrow. But as you take a second look upon Job's sorrow, remember also that our grief must be governed and governed by hope. His heart, as you can imagine, I mean, the best we can, we've never had to go through that, but as you can imagine, that man's heart was broken. I can't begin to imagine what the funeral service was like for Job. And when he buried ten children, I can't comprehend that. But carefully ponder that last verse. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. 
That tells me that his sorrow, his grief was not inordinate. It was not excessive. You see, there is a kind of sorrow that we can indulge in that is sinful. Why sinful? Because it stops being a sorrow that's governed by God, that's governed by hope. Instead, it has been controlled by unbelief. You've lost hope in God. It gets out of hand. It behaves when we are indulging in excessive sorrow. It behaves as if there wasn't a God who comforts his people. It's acting as if God has gone too far this time. As if he has allowed the devil to go too far. As if there isn't any hope of a better day. And of the night season coming to an end. As if the sun is never going to rise again. And that's the message that's conveyed when the sorrow becomes inordinate, when it becomes excessive. Remember what Paul wrote to those believers at Thessalonica who were in grief because some Christians in that church, Christians who were dearly loved, had passed away. Paul says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, those that have died, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Don't sorrow like the world. Don't act as if there's no hope in this scenario, in this situation, because there is. You know, Bonner showed this gracious blend of sorrow and hope when he wrote that God did not forbid him to mourn, nor would he forget to bless. It shattered him. But still, God's going to bless me in spite of this. Learn a godly response at God's removals. Job sorrowed. Secondly, Job submitted. Verse 20 again shows us how he faced this sea of sorrow that had suddenly come flooding into his soul. He fell down upon the ground and worshipped. In the time of his great trial, he humbly bows before God and worships him. He gets down on the ground. A place of submission, of reverence. He resigns himself to God's will and worships him. This was the very God he knew who had afflicted him with this. Never once does he mention, the, why did the devil, why did the devil do this? Why did the Sabaeans or the Chaldeans, why did that whirlwind come about? None on your life. 
He owes it all, traces it all back to the hand of God, and he bows in submission to God to worship him. Job did not get angry at God for taking away from him what had been such a source of blessing and tokens and evidence of God's blessing upon his life. Did he? No. He didn't question the wisdom of God. He didn't question God's love for him. It did not drive him away from the Lord. It drove him to the Lord. It is what he says next that reveals why he did that. Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. There is as clear a statement as you will find that Job believed in the absolute sovereignty of God, in the absolute goodness of God, and in the absolute wisdom of God. What's he saying? How do you submit, humbly submit? That means there is no rebellion in the heart. There's no arguing with God. There's no resistance taking place about your circumstances. You're not fighting the Lord because he's taken something away that has been such a means of blessing to you. Whether it's a pastor, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a child, doesn't make any difference. Job says in the first place that everything that we have has been given to us by God. Everything. I, I came, he says, I came into this world with nothing. Not a stitch of clothing. He knew that he would leave it with nothing because he's not going to take anything with him. Not a stitch of clothing. Nothing. Job believed, therefore, that everything that he would ever own had been given to him by and according to the sovereign will of God who gave to him because God is a giving God, because God is good. You see, we are quite ready to say that God is good when he gives, but Job's saying God is good when he takes away. In his goodness, he takes away. Those children, those servants, those oxen, asses, sheep, and camels, Job saw all of them as a gift from the Lord. Now that truth has a number of ramifications for the Lord's people and they're going to respond in a godly way when God removes things. 
says everything that we have has actually been given to us freely by God and given to us according to his grace. That means that they are undeserved. Undeserved gifts. Job did not merit that large family. He did not merit that wealth. He did not merit that place of honor that had been given to him among men. And we, we have not and indeed could not earn the very least of the Lord's favors and mercies and gifts. And that's why, it's, that's why this is all about grace. Who, have, who, who here will actually say, I deserve this gift from God. I deserve to be provided for. I deserve to be protected. I deserve it. Do, do, Do we deserve our children? Do we deserve our spouses? who have stayed by us through thick and thin? Do we deserve that? Do we deserve our health? Do we deserve our homes, our cars, our clothing? Do we deserve salvation? Do we deserve forgiveness? Do we deserve to be joyful? Do we deserve whatever talents we have? Well, I trust you know the answer to all those questions is no, 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 a thousand times no. We don't deserve any of them. Our loving Father has graciously given them to us who are not worthy of them. And since they're not deserved gifts, that means we have no claim to them. We have no right to them. They're given to us by the sovereign hand of God. That's what he's saying. So when you think about a godly response at God's removals... Make sure that you don't fall prey to the sin of worshiping the gift and forgetting all about the giver. Once you fall prey to that, you're going to find yourself really with an attitude, I deserve this. I have a right to this. Had Job worshipped his children and his wealth, you would have not seen him falling down before the Lord to worship him. He would not have done that because he was worshiping his wealth. He was worshiping his children. There are a lot of people who make idols out of their gold and silver or they make idols out of their husbands, their wives, their children, their parents, their friends. I don't think Job had made an idol out of his children, but there are many parents who have. 
So often as is the case when parents have made idols out of their children or out of anything, God will use those very idols as a rod of discipline to break his people from that form of idolatry. He's the one who said, I will have no other gods in my face. No one that you put before me. I'm first. I always come first. You never want to let the joys and blessings of home and family and friends usurp God as the great source of all your joy and the object of your greatest love. He is always to be the greatest object of your love. Not your spouse, not your children, not your church, not your pastor, not things, but the Lord and the chief source where you go to to find happiness. So when he says what he says, naked came I out, naked I'll return to the dust of the ground. Everything that is withheld from us is withheld by God. The Lord gave Job, we read in that first chapter, 7,000 sheep. But he didn't give him 10,000 or 100,000 sheep. He withheld. He gave him 500 yoke of oxen, not 1,000. He could have done that. He could have done that, but he didn't do that. He was the greatest of all the men of the East, the Scripture says, but he wasn't the greatest of all men in the earth. There were things... There were blessings that God sovereignly, wisely withheld from Job. He did not give them to him. And Job believed that God was wise in doing that. He had no problem with that. You may say that if you had that kind of wealth that Job had, you wouldn't want God to give you any more. You'd be satisfied. Really? Is it really how much God gives you that really makes you content with what He gives you and what He withholds? Is that really true? I don't think so. Every time we think that if we can just have this or that blessing, this or that thing, we would be content and happy. Everything would be just fine. And it's not so. Do you not think... As I come today to the end of over 30 years of pastoral ministry, that the thought hasn't crossed my mind, if only the Lord would bless me with a large, flourishing church, I'd be happy. I'd be content. I know the human heart too well to fall for that. 
true contentment, as Paul puts it in Philippians 4, is being content when God gives. I know how to abound. And when God withholds, I know how to be abased. I have learned in whatever state I'm in therewith to be content. It's one thing to say that when the abounding is going on, but when the withholding, I'm content. Content when He gives to us the things that we have prayed for earnestly, but also content when he sovereignly withholds the things that we have prayed for earnestly. We need to learn from Job's submission to the sovereign will of God that it will always, that will, will always be holy. There's no sin in it. No wrong committed. It will always be good. It will always be right. It will always be wise. It will always be perfect. Now, doesn't that automatically silence any complaining? Automatically. Not forbidden to sorrow. Not forbidden to weep at God's removals. But I am told to submit. Isn't it like that for all of his problems and his failures as a high priest and as a father, when that little boy Samuel told him what his future was going to be, Eli said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. It's the Lord. We got to say that, folks. The Lord's taking you away from me and me away from you. And all I can say is, it's the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. That will indeed soothe our sorrow when we have to face dark days when the Lord withholds the blessings that we feel we so desperately need. But it goes further in this Submission of Job. In his submission, Job confessed that everything that is taken away from us is taken away by God. Yes, the Lord gives, but the Lord takes away, he said. And to be honest, that is the part we have the most trouble with. But if God is the sovereign giver, he's also the sovereign taker. Job believed that. And so he bows before and worships, and worships this God who he knows is the the sustainer and the disposer of his creation. You see, it all begins with that truth that everything belongs to the Lord. All that we have is a gift from him. It's not ours. Therefore, 
If something is taken away from us, if something is removed from us, then it's the Lord who's done that. You're wasting your time to think about and try to figure out all of the reasons and secondary causes. If you want to have a godly response when the Lord takes things away from you, takes them away. I don't know if you've ever seen someone hit a dog with a stick, but the dog's immediate response is to try to bite the stick. But it's not the stick. It's the one wielding the stick. The stick is just the secondary cause. It was the Lord, Job realized, who took away his children. It was the Lord who took away his wealth. It was the Lord who would eventually take away his health and all of the honor that he had among men who would take away his light who would take away the pleasant circumstances he had in life for a long, long time. And he bows before that God, and he declares that this is his conviction of the truth and worships. That's the reason why Job did not charge God foolishly. It means literally he didn't charge him with folly. You did something that wasn't wise. He's saying just the opposite. When he worshipped him, he says, God, you did the wisest thing that could be done in my life just now. And that's the fact. Let's not take the name of Calvinist only when things are going good for us. Let's not profess our strong belief in the sovereignty of God only when we like what the sovereign hand of God is doing, when the sovereign hand of God is giving. But you have to be convinced of the fact that whenever God takes away, it's absolute wisdom at work absolute love at work. That brings an end to complaining. You see, they were never ours in the first place. They were loaned to us. How do you think Hannah gave up that little boy, Samuel? bearing for so long. But her vow was, you, you give me a child and I'll give him to you. How did she do that? Well, she said, he's alone to me. Not mine, he's yours anyway. This church isn't my church. It's the Lord's church. 
And you're the Lord's flock. And I'm the Lord's servant. And he does what he pleases with his own. We've been loaned to each other. You can make that application to anything that you're going to lose in life. It was never yours. The job, the income, the health, the friends, the usefulness, the strength, the wisdom. The Lord takes those things away. The Lord. Why then should we complain with infinite wisdom and infinite love? Mourning, you see, mourning over the loss of something or someone that is dear to your heart is one thing. And I have been mourning for a good while over what the Lord is doing. But murmuring against God because he did take something away is another matter altogether. Make sure you make a difference between mourning and murmuring. Once we know the Lord has done it, there's no need to question the rightness of it. We may not understand, but if God did it, it was right. Because he does all things after the counsel of his own will, and his own will is always right. Always. So if that's all true now, if that's all true, I trust you know it's true and you believe it's true. Is it not better to be sick if God takes away your health? Health has been given to you. If it leaves you, it's because he's taken it away. And if it's the will of God to take it away, is it not better that it be taken away? Because your only other position is it's not better. And what God has done is not good. It is not wise. Is it better that you be a widow or a widower if God takes away your spouse? You know the answer. Yes, it's better. He's always doing the best thing that could be done. So it's better that I'm a widow or a widower. If God takes a child, every life is in his hand. He's the one that disposes of life. If God takes a child, is it not better? Has he stopped doing the wisest thing he could do? 
the most loving thing he could do for his people? Are we now going to question the wisdom and the love and the goodness of God simply because we don't like what he's doing because of the pain it has caused us? It's better that you, child of God, be poor if God takes away your wealth. Because that's what he's saying. God says it's better that you be poor. It was better that Job be poor. The Lord took away all his wealth. It's better that I not be your pastor and that you not be my flock if God takes us away from each other. It's better. I'm going to say more about that tonight. Just now, just now, in the midst of the mourning and the sadness and the mystery. We must worship the Lord and bow to His sovereign will. Third response and final. Job sang. What did he sing? Blessed be the name of the Lord. It was only a short note of praise, and it was sung from a heart that I am sure was broken, and eyes that were red with weeping. But it was a song of praise. Blessed be the name of the Lord, the name standing for God himself. Blessed be God. He's lost everything. Everything. It seems. But he praises God. So... We bless the Lord when He gives. We ought to. Sadly, we have to confess we forget to do that. To bless Him when He gives. But we also bless the Lord. We take up Job's song when He withholds from us what we think we really need. And we bless the Lord when he takes away from us that which was a means of blessing. You know, through it all, folks, I want you to see something that stands out wonderfully. What did the devil say about Job 
as far as him serving the Lord, he's doing it for what he's getting from you. You take this away, he'll curse you to your face. What did Job do? Blessed be the name of the Lord. He blessed God. He did not curse him. The devil was shown to be a liar. I'm all for that. I'm all for that. To prove him by my response to God's removals that I serve him for naught. I serve him not because I get. I serve him because of who he is and what he's given to me. That's the godly response to God's removal. May it be ours at this time in our lives and always. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's serve the Lord. Seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, we come in the Savior's name, blessing thee that we have had these 17 years together in this place. And Lord, the time has come when Thou art removing the pastor of this work and removing this little flock from the pastor's care. We can say this day that Thou dost move in mysterious ways Thy wonders to perform. We acknowledge gladly, Lord, that Thou hast done the best thing that could be done, the kindest, gracious, wisest, holiest thing that could be done for all of us. We bow before Thy will. We don't do it, Lord, reluctantly but in the midst even of our sadness we rejoice for thou art the God who is blessed forever and has blessed thy people forever it is well it is well with the righteous in Christ Jesus name we pray amen Amen.